This is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on uh, Wednesday, October 18th. Oh, okay. October 18th. Yeah. 2023. Mm. Uh, we, we were, you know, busy having a happy anniversary. Mm-hmm. Somewhat celebrated in New York. What do you mean somewhat celebrated? Well, our anniversary was actually Monday, but by, by we, we, we got we, home. Yeah. Yeah. The big event was Sunday the big because event. we, we went, wanted to see the show on Sunday. We went to see Broadway show and stayed overnight. And we went to see on Sunday, Merrily We Roll Along, which as it happens every once in a while, happens to be the just opened on Broadway hottest show in New York. Fair enough? Is that fair? What do you mean every once in a while? Well, who sees the show the first weekend that opens? I mean, that's rare. I mean, we're, we're on top of it. We're like, at, at the moment, it just opened. I don't even know up. what you're saying. We went it, to a, It opened on Friday. We saw it on Sunday. Oh, please. It's a revival. It's, been, it's open. The reviews this production up, came out a while you ago. You can't get a ticket. And we, you bought it way in advance. You're on top of it. You can get a ticket if you pay zillions of dollars. Well, that's always and the way. And we right. did that because it was a special occasion. All right. Let's, let's not get into money. It's not all about money, honey. When it comes to our <laughs> anniversary, I'm willing to spend. You know what I mean? You took me out to dinner. I, the dinner, whole shebang. The whole shebang. <laughs> exactly right. We ordered it a la carte, as they like to say. So uh, everything was coming your way. In any event, that was the big event, though, seeing Merrily We Roll Along. Um, Stephen Sondheim. Which, as you say, of course, a revival. First opened in 1981, and it was a flop. It is the famous flop of Stephen Sondheim's. Right. There's there's even a movie about it, and we've talked about it. Right. But but, but, what was it? The the most... the best terrible thing, the most awful terrible thing, the most wonderful awful terrible you thing. You know what? what? Some people research things before they talk <laughs> yeah, about you can them find it. on their podcast. It's a, it's a documentary about a failed Broadway show. And it was a Sondheim show. Sondheim was a big name by that point and has a wonderful musical score. Right. High this, expectations. And because the book was muddled in people's view, uh, and for a lot of other reasons we won't get into now, it was a flop and it marked the end of the partnership between Stephen Sondheim, the great songwriter and lyricist, and Harold Prince, the great producer and director. After that, they didn't work again uh, together. So it was uh, quite weird. It was quite catastrophic. Sondheim almost left the musical theater industry over that. Uh, Did he say something? I'd I'd rather write video games? He said, I'd rather work (laughs) on video games. It's the way he felt for a while. Um, and, uh, but since then, uh, since people recognize the merit in the score, um, a lot of people, you know, play doctors, uh, have revived it at various stages of tinkering with the way the play is done to try to have it make more sense and to resonate, uh, and with some success. And as a matter of fact, we have seen previous to this past Sunday, we had seen two different versions of it. Uh, and I think it's fair to say, you tell me that it's your favorite Sondheim musical. Uh, it, it might be. It might be. I haven't seen all all the musicals. Well, really. the ones you've seen, obviously. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, yes. The first production we saw. Yeah. Was at Encores, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't remember that. But, but I, anyway, Lin Manuel Miranda was in it. Was in it. Yeah. Um, as an actor. As an actor. Yeah. And this was pre Hamilton. Sure. So I had no idea who he was. And we thought he was pretty I had, good. And I had no expectations. You know, yeah. I'm I'm late to the Sondheim party. Okay. Uh, but uh, I was tremendously moved. Okay. I thought this was a great play. Right. I was shocked that it was a flop on Broadway when right. it opened. And that was, I think that was 2012. So it had right. opened 30 years before. Right. 81. <laughs> And uh, I really liked it. And, and then, then we saw, and then we saw a production that was probably roundabout, about, which yeah. is very good, very good. We enjoyed it a great deal. And you once again said to me, "That's a great Sondheim musical." What's the, what's the problem? And <laughs> and now they've done it again, and this is a much ballyhooed production as reflected in the ticket prices, uh, with a an excellent cast. Uh, and uh, that would be Jonathan Groff and Daniel Radcliffe and Lindsay Mendez, uh, the three main players. Um, tremendous advance word because it was it was off Broadway about six months ago. 
Um, and uh, what did you think? I enjoyed it. I, it didn't have the impact it had for me the very first time I saw it. Could be because that was the first time you saw it. Right. And uh, it's the story of uh, the relationship of three people. Hmm. And it moves backward right. through time. So you see them as older. And in each scene, they're getting younger. younger. And you're seeing the history of their relationship. Right. And so you come from, you know, the rela- reality of today, moving back into the sort of the optimism and naivete of youth. And it's extremely poignant, yeah. touchy yeah. Um, to be able to walk through this with them mm-hmm. and uh, sit in their place. So... Uh, uh, again, I think I, I think you're right. I think the first time you see it is perhaps the most impactful because it's the first time. But the music's great always. Uh, look, I I thought it was great. Um, I agree with you. I really enjoyed the other productions we saw. I mean, I would probably in my mind this was the best production, but it, that doesn't make any difference. We're splitting hairs. Uh, it was, and 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 again, the changes continued to be made. Uh, and we can go into it, and at times review, like every other review, is extremely positive, but it takes it apart in a way that I'm not going to waste our time with, which is 100% wrong. I think he, I don't know what Jesse Green was experiencing emotionally when he saw this play, but it worked his way into the review. Uh, but in any event, um, I thought, thought it was fantastic, and I do think a lot of it is the three leads, honestly. And which is not to say Lin-Manuel wasn't very good, he was. But, but, and I... Daniel Radcliffe, which I think that was a Lin-Manuel part. Yes. Uh, Is excellent. I'm not a Harry Potter guy, but he was super. And people make a tremendous fuss about Jonathan Groff and what I guess is nominally the lead part. Uh, And he was famously, if you talk about Hamilton and Lin-Manuel, he played the king. He sang that song about... yeah, you know, we saw him right, doing the king. Right, and, and, and he sang that song about, uh, oh, you know, that John Adams, they'll te- tear that poor man apart, you know. <laughs> um, and Lindsay Mendez, who we know less well, uh, was great. I thought yeah. she was great, tremendously enthusiastic, and she brought a lot of energy to it. Um, so, any event. So, I would agree with you. It's probably the best production. Yeah. But uh, the first one I saw had more right. emotional impact right. for me. Sure. It's the first time you see so, it, and and we should notice we should note some of the big songs that come out of that. Sure. It, it was a even though it was a flop. There were several very popular songs, including "Not a Day Goes By," right, which is wonderful. Right, "Old Friends." Mm-hmm. Um, is there any other one you would say? Oh, is? "Merrily Merrily We Roll Along," but that's I, very I specific. That's really, yeah. Look, you know, I tell you, it's funny. "Merrily We Roll Along" kind of fits with the play, and it works very well with the play. But you're right; it doesn't translate outside. I will tell you that Not a Day Goes By doesn't belong in the show. I it, It's a great song, but mm-hmm. it, it, given what's going on in the show, it is very peripheral to what's well, going on in the show. Well, that's an interesting point. And, and, and matter of fact, and I can prove it to you because it's a, it's a Frank Sinatra standard. Mm-hmm. Okay, that tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> he, he sings it like, you know, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place. Yeah. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and that does not belong in that show. But it, 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 it's a great song. Look, the show... The show is exemplified by old friends. The show-stopping song is the the sort of right. patter song, right. the interview song that Daniel Radcliffe it's did. It's called Franklin Shepherd Inc. Yeah, and uh, that's telling you know the story of supposedly how he and um, Franklin Shepherd worked together. Yeah, um, and uh, it it he really did an unbelievable job. Right. And, and again, Lin Manuel was very good at that, but uh, Daniel Radcliffe was hard to beat. Yeah. Uh, and he threw himself in. I mean, the part, you know, I, uh, Daniel Radcliffe very well fits into that part. He's all kind of nervous energy and uh, bouncing around and, and uh, you know, can hardly sit still. That's that's that part. And uh, he's very good. So, so we recommend it if you can get tickets and yeah. you can afford it. It's, it's Because it's a look back in life, yeah. it's well suited to people who have been alive for a while. Uh, yeah. I would not take a young child to this. There was a young child uh, in our row. Right. And, uh, you know, I thought, what are they really going to get out of this? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, it, it's not that it's any kind of 
adult content, so to speak. It's just not going yeah. to resonate. Well, you know, you know, I'm, re- I'm remembering the film about the, why the first production was a flop. And there's a very simple reason, uh, as that what probably was as big as any is why it was a flop. They had the idea, given that you go back in time and they start, and, and the end slash beginning of the show, people are 17 18, or 18, 19 years old. They cast all young people when they first did it. Yeah. Uh, so you had young, all 18, mostly 19 non-professional, olds. right? Non-professional, right? And Sondheim to get that fresh, the, it, naive, right? And Sondheim is quoted in the documentary saying that was a huge mistake. You had these young people didn't have the life experience you were talking about. You lose, lose the buoyancy. They weren't professional. They didn't sing that well, and it kind of killed the show. There was only one actor. He said when I saw that cast and I watched it, there was only one person. I said, well, that person is a real star, even though they're very young. And that person was Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander was in the show when Sondheim said, that guy is going to be a pro. Everybody else, I think, is just an amateur. <laughs> he was. He played the um, yeah. producer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, in any event, that, that was great. So, um, yes, we have a lot to talk about. You have an article about the famous Piccarelli brothers, or the not-so-famous Piccarelli brothers. Uh Maybe you've heard of them. Yeah, so a big article in the New York Times, fun article to read, great pictures. Uh, title of the article is How They Shaped New York. It's uh, one of their streetscapes uh, story stories. It was in the real estate section, actually. And um, it's about six Italian immigrant brothers who uh, did sculptures all over New York, mm-hmm. okay? And... Uh, the lions in front of the library that you just saw. Oh, 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 the New York Public Library. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, Rockefeller Plaza, a, a zillion different uh, sculptures <clears throat> and bas-reliefs. New York Stock Exchange, the main monument, Columbus Circle, uh, Woodlawn Cemetery, uh, Bowling Green. Uh, you know, just uh, everywhere you look. And not, not to mention... Uh, all over the country as well, and uh, you've never heard of them. Uh, why is that? Uh, for the very simple reason that um, they they actually even did Lincoln, the big Abraham Lincoln. Now you're going to say, oh, but that's by uh, Daniel Chester French. Uh, well, yes, he designed it. He did the and then the Piccarelli brothers carved it. He sent them a seven-foot model. They translated it into the 19-foot tall um, monument that it is uh, today. And that's generally how sculpture worked uh, and still works to some extent. An artist will create a sculpture, make it in clay, and then send a plaster cast to fabricators like the Piccarelli brothers who would then translate it using something called a pointing machine, which allows you to translate a, you know, a sculpture of any size into a different size Mm -hmm. by, you know, locating, you know, the same points, uh, et cetera. Um, This can also be done, well, and even bronze sculptures done the same way. You make the plaster cast, you send it to the... um, Forge and, uh, you know, it's cast in bronze. So uh, these guys were uh, had a tremendous workshop uh, up in the Bronx. And uh, unfortunately, uh, when they went out of business, everything was destroyed. So we have none of their records. Uh, it would be wonderful to know, uh, ab- you know, everything uh, they did and to more about... Uh, all their work and all their process and where everything is. Fortunately, someone is doing a documentary. Um, and uh, who is this someone? Eduardo Montes Bradley, a 63-year-old filmmaker uh, from Buenos Aires, is, uh, has been working for two years on a documentary uh, about these guys. And it should be fascinating um one of uh, one of the interesting sculptures they did you know so mainly they're translating the uh, the designs of uh, other artists they're commissioned to do this um but uh, you know they have some uh, original works uh in various places the most uh interesting one to me 
is one called The Outcast. It's it's called The Outcast. I don't know if it really deserves that uh, title, but it's a, a very emotional sculpture that uh, marks the grave of the son of one of the brothers um, who uh, died uh, in battle in the Philippines. And um, it's uh, a very... It's a, a nude man crouching, you know, is he, is he suffering? Is he, you know, grieving? It's, it's unclear exactly what it is, but a uh, very interesting sculpture that they did. But so watch for that documentary right. about the Piccarilli brothers and, uh, you know, keep an eye out for all, all right. their work everywhere. Ton right. of work. Well, the other thing, uh, oh, okay. I should say the other thing. One thing we've been doing on a regular basis, because you can't get enough, is we've been uh, watching the baseball, Major League <laughs> Baseball playoffs. I, every, I, you're, sometimes you put it on all by yourself. It's alarming. Uh, even when I was out on Monday night. Saves time. You were watching the Phillies. You're a big Phillies fan. Well, I have to be able to chat with my mom. My mom still follows... Uh... Your mom still thinks the Braves are in it. I mean, your mom is not on top of this. No, that's, that was just a momentary lapse. You know, she, she said she said to me this week, she said, uh, the, um, the Phillies, oh yeah, who who are they playing? Are they Arizona or something? No, yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah. That's an extremely good impression of your mom. It's too bad. <laughs> Only I can get that. Um, so the, the big complaint about the playoffs, for those who are into complaining, which is, means every sports fan, is that the best teams don't win in the playoffs. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the teams are seeded. The teams that actually won the division get the higher seed and get a so-called bye. Don't play the first People round. People who won all the games right. during the season. Right. So the Braves win 110 games during the season or whatever, yeah. they get a bye. Uh, and then uh, the lesser teams who qualify for the playoffs, but by dint of the so-called wild card, who have won like 90 games or 95 games, won 15, 20 games fewer, uh, a couple of them square off and play. And then the winner plays in the next round against the division winner, again, the Braves. Uh, and what happens? The Braves lose. The, uh, the Braves being on one side of the bracket. Same thing happens on the other side of the National League bracket. The Dodgers. The Dodgers win a load of games. Two teams square off. The winner of the wild card goes and plays the Dodgers, and the Dodgers lose. And people say, this is crazy. What's the reward for winning all those games during the season? Because that team generally loses. Uh, and then, is that right? Is that a big disadvantage? Do they have a disadvantage by sitting for uh, four or five days while the other uh, teams with the wild card team square off? And the answer is clearly they do have a disadvantage. And um, there's no obvious solution to this. I will say you're better off. I'll just throw this out there without getting into the math. You're better off statistically winning the division because your chances of getting to the World Series are even are, are generally better if you've won the division just because you don't take the risk of losing in that first round. So by not taking that risk, you're in a better position. But when that first round is over and the second round begins, the team that's won the, the wild card playoff is actually favored, generally, in my mind. Because they're on a roll? Because they're on a roll. But on a roll feels unsatisfactory. Why would it be? Well, when you watch the games, you realize how important timing uh, is to these, these players. And the notion of sitting for four or five days, and in some cases the pitcher is sitting eight or nine days, really affects them really affects them. I mean, we're watching the game last night. Uh, and uh, it was a reasonably close game until Arizona put in a relief pitcher against the Phillies who gave up four or five runs. And in, and the commentator says, well, what do you expect? He hasn't pitched for eight days. Um, well, I don't know. It's not obvious to me that you don't pitch for eight days, you can't pitch. You are allowed well, to warm up. Well, who said that? Did Ron Darling say that? Um, I think uh, I think Darling did say that. Yeah. Well, he's a pitcher. Yeah. No. I, so he might have a reason to say that. These guys know what they're talking about. You wouldn't trust Frenchy Francoeur. You know. It's one thing. I I, I don't know. I just uh, means more to me uh, if, if a, a guy who's said, played that position is remarking about how to you know something well, about look, I, that I, position. And we've heard Darling. I, I watched Darling during the Mets broadcast. When that happens in a Met game, they put someone in who hasn't pitched for a while. Darling says uh, it's perfectly, you know, to be expected that he's not going to have the feel for his pitches for the first inning because mm -hmm. he hasn't pitched. Mm -hmm. So it is timing is a problem. Uh, you might call it um, load management. That's sometimes a fancy word. But the idea of load management uh, comes up 
in the opposite way in basketball. And this, again, here we get into a data issue, right? So load management, it's a phrase often used in basketball to explain why basketball teams during the regular season, which lasts 82 games, often sit their stars. And I, often is the wrong word. I say regularly sit their stars. So even when they're not hurt, uh, some of the stars will sit out. And that could be as many as, I don't know, 15 games during the season or something like that. They space it out. And that's unsatisfactory uh, in one way because, you know, you go into a town, you go into a away game, they're playing Philadelphia 76ers. Fans come to see, uh, you know, the, the, the Warriors. And they want to see Steph Curry. He's a big star. They've seen him on the subway ads. They know who he is. He's ready to go. And he's sitting. And yeah, he, no, I think we actually talked about this before. There were, there were actually uh, stories on the nightly news mm-hmm. about it because you'd have uh, kids who, you know, save up just right. to go to this game. They're wearing the jerseys, right. a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and the guy is not there. Right. And I, I think there are various so, times so, when... So you would think that... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you would think that the league would say... Uh, well, the league, would there would be rumblings about the league saying you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. We're, you know, fan-based. We need the support of the fans, blah, blah. Mm. The way the NBA works is different than some other leagues. They are very... Um, uh, solicitous of their players. The uh, the uh, management of the league, the commissioner, they bend over backwards in order to uh, entertain any player thought. They, they don't want, they say we're partners. You don't hear that in Major League Baseball between ownership and players. But you also players. have these guys playing a lot. Mm, mm, mm. I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll come back They're to that. They're not like those hockey players no. who just come in for a few minutes no, no, and no. go out. No, no, no. You can, believe me, they go out. Um, but... Um, Look, we can see both sides of it. All I'm saying is that the uh, the management of the league has always kind of backed the teams and the players. They said, well, I, maybe that's right. We've looked at the data, and the data says that, you know, if you sit players at certain intervals, there's less likely that they will suffer an injury because it's a long 82-game schedule. Well, apparently the data has changed because now the commissioner's office has taken a new approach. They announced this. This is from Joe Dumars, used to be a player, the NBA's executive vice president. Quote, before it was a given conclusion that the data showed that you had to rest players a certain amount, and that justified them sitting out. We've now gotten more data, and it just doesn't show that resting correlates with lack of injuries or fatigue or anything like that. How's that? Well, do you believe it or don't you believe it? Well, figures lie and liars figure. <laughs> I don't think there was ever any data for or against. I don't think I, right. a, okay, I, there's no I meaning agree. for it. I think we it's all, now have new it's all data, nonsense. You know? But but all right, but that's the question. So so the person writing the article in Times, this fellow David Aldridge, says, What? <laughs> what? <laughs> there's no, I mean there's another quote from Silver saying and says uh, and what he says, honestly. That's what I've been told as well, Adam Silver says, that it was the science. We've just been following the science. The, the science. You're back with following the science. Yeah. Uh, right? So it's kind of a joke. And Aldridge says, is it possible it's because there's a new contract with the networks and they're really trying to, to please the networks? Whoa. And maybe that's what's going on? Uh, there's also another stream running through and it comes back to Joe Dumars. Joe Dumars as I said, was a player. He played with Isaiah Thomas on the Pistons. He's Some people call him old school. To me, that's still too young to be old school, but old enough. Mm-hmm. And back in that, back in the day, back in Dumore's day and certainly earlier, players played every game. And guess what? They didn't get injured. They didn't get injured near as much as these guys do. Now, you might say, oh, it's more athletic now. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not going to get deeply into it. But there's no question you can play every single game and it's not going to hurt you. Maybe you don't play quite as hard. I don't know, but um, it is interesting just to see the way, you know, the science works. The science works. The science. The science. When you want one conclusion, science works one way. When you want another conclusion, it works a different way. So right. it's in sports and everything else. So speaking of which. Um, yeah, there was an te- interesting article, a couple of interesting articles about teaching yeah. that caught our eye, eyes this week. Right. And uh, the one that I saw first yeah. was about um, basically... What's the best, the most successful school system in the country? Mm -hmm. It's the Department of Defense. Right. The Department of Defense handles 66,000 students. 
about 150 schools in the U.S. and uh, abroad. And um, while all these measures of uh, student um, success have been plummeting over the last few years, that's not happening with the Department of Defense. If anything, uh, things are improving. Mm -hmm. Test scores are improving, etc. And so the question is, why? Why? And uh, so in the Times article, they mentioned a couple, uh, you know, they have a list of things they think give, um, are the keys to success for the Department of Defense. Number one is everybody in the system has access to housing and health care. Mm-hmm. In other words, they have, you know, some very big concerns, worries are off the table. The stable home environment. The stable, well, I may, that may be overstating it, but mm-hmm. they, you know, certain factors in their mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. are um, stable at least. So there is that, all right? Number two, the teachers are well paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, I mean, well, they're, yeah, they get paid quite. They a bit attract more, right? good teachers, right? Uh, number three, they have supplies. Mm-hmm. Whereas you hear teachers in many public schools saying, you know, we the teachers are the supply closet. We, right. you know, again and again and again, you you uh, see student, uh, teachers providing uh, supplies out of their own pocket for the students. The in the military, they actually get the stuff. Right. They have the stuff to use, right? So that's not a concern. Uh, another thing is they're very strong on a consistent curriculum. They've designed a curriculum. They, as of like something like uh, they started in 2015, uh, kind of renovating the curriculum and standardizing it across uh, the whole system, and for them it works. And they don't have the upheaval of local uh, school boards and, uh, you know, the, the changes. And the, now we'll do this. Now we're going to instigate that. It's solid. It's across the board. Your parents can be, your, your mother or father can be stationed in Germany. And you're in eighth grade. You can do ninth grade in uh, Georgia. And there's no gap there's no disconnect right. it's smooth all right yeah. um so so there's all that and then you know uh, when i read through the notes uh the comments online people also added another factor saying um you know there is this sense of discipline and hierarchy in the military right. um that uh I guess facilitates uh, a sense, you know, uh, a working relationship between the teachers and the students. Right. They also said they they work very hard to maintain a certain level of all teaching. They have the teachers work together. Mm-hmm. They try to make sure that they're not just depending on one or two exceptional teachers to do breakthroughs. They want all yeah. the teachers uh, um, that, to measure up to a certain that, extent. They're, they're constantly... Observing them, right? You know, that, that's a little them. tricky to me. That last one because there's some pluses and minuses with that kind of centralized control. But let me go back to the the one your point. No, I, no, I'm just saying that this is what the times I, I, I and you know very student. That, that's, that's that's the one know, I credit. I, you know, I'm all for you know. Uh, I, I I would not fit into this system. I don't think at all. Okay, yeah. well, uh, but uh, yeah. you know, in terms in terms of teaching and following a very strict, yeah. you know, regular centralized curriculum, you know, using the tools they want you to use, that wouldn't work for me at all. Right. So maybe there's no place for me in successful education. I don't know. But I'm just telling you uh, why well, uh, look, the, the they thing, think it works. The reason that resonates with me is the one that related to discipline. Because when you think about the families, the parents involved, the environment being a military-sponsored uh, school and whatever, I, I believe there probably is a discipline in the sense of making consistent demands on the students and following through on them. And there was, was an article in the Times by coincidence at the same time, different section, called Teachers Can No Longer Hold Students Accountable. 
and it was not talking about the military schools, but public schools more generally, in which it made uh, the following observation that uh, if you look at um, GPAs and graduation rates across the country uh, in high schools, they've been going up over the last few years. At the same time, national exam scores, achievement, and attendance has been going down. And I say, look, this is this something is wrong here. What yeah. is going on? Because it can't be that the kids aren't going to school and their grades are getting better uh, at the same time and they're doing poorly on the exam. What's going on? Well, according to this article, at least, what's going on is that students are being given an easy pass, even when they're not doing the work, which only is important because they're not learning that much. And when they get out of high school, they know less. And they say that colleges have to have remedial classes to try to bring them up to speed in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. Again, that's what the article says. Um, uh, So why, how specifically does that happen? Um, And they say in two ways. Number one is... Chronic absenteeism is rampant, and they have all these statistics about kids just not going to school. And you can, you know, maybe it has to do with the pandemic, maybe it doesn't, but it doesn't make any difference. There's a lot of absenteeism going on. That's point one. Uh, point two is that there's a rule in a lot of school districts, apparently, it's called the 50% minimum, that uh, no matter how poorly a student does, or even if he doesn't show for a particular exam, uh, or a particular assignment, can't get a grade of zero. The lowest grade you can get is a 50%, which seems odd to me, but that's the way it is. So what they say is that um, uh, here they have a teacher from Chapel Hill said, we've got students who skip over 100 days, get a 50%, complete a couple of assignments, they reach a 60 and they pass the course. And, uh, you know, how widespread that is, I don't know. The article gives you the impression that it's very widespread. But there's also a general attitude that you just want to pass the students through the school. And that's the third thing that's a little more amorphous, but it feels like, again, that's, uh, it's not worth it. It's not worth arguing with the parents. And they say to argue with the parents who come in and say, how come my kid's not getting, um, you know, better grades? How come he's not learning more? Uh, they say those arguments don't work because... Uh, the parents never accept the attitude. They never say, what can we do? They always say, here's what you, the school, you, the school have to do more. And the school's saying, kid's not even at school. Kid's not even trying. The kid's not really engaged. There's a limit to what we can do. And the easiest thing to do is to pass the kid through the system. Look, I mean, it's hard to to cover that subject in just a single article as they try to do this opinion section. But it is a real contrast with the story you were just talking about in terms of the school's Sponsored by the Pentagon. Right. Very different situation. Right. right. I mean, if you have, it's a huge leg up for the teachers to be in a situation where they know the students will show up and do the work. And the parents will back the teachers up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it can be done. It can be done, according to this, but uh, it's tough. All right. So then there was an article called Grand Canyon Warns Love Locks. You're cutting me out here? What, what What do you have? Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go first. You go first. No, you, this is not, it's not like this is such a... No, I want to hear it. ...fascinating uh, article. No. It, it was just, uh, you know, speaking of learning and teaching, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I um, love reading, mm-hmm. and I love bookstores. I don't know if you really love bookstores. No. No, I, I can't believe that. I, why, I, why can't you? I don't love any store. I, but just looking at the books. I, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. You know? I don't mind it. I don't and mind I it. find it, you know, I I um, actually went, uh, I got shut out. I went to the Metropolitan Museum yeah. on Monday while you were at the office. Yeah. And I saw I saw the Manet Degas exhibition. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it was great. It was quite fascinating. And actually, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the biggest Degas fan mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I, I I have a new appreciation. Once again, seeing art in person changes everything. So are you telling me okay? you, bought, you bought a Degas in the bookstore? No I, no, I didn't buy a Degas in the bookstore. And I didn't, you know, um, I, uh, I attempted after I went through the exhibition... Which again, I highly recommend it. It's going to be there for a while. Go see it. It's 
interesting comparison of two artists. Um, but uh, I tried to go uh, into the um, balcony lounge mm-hmm. and uh, grab some lunch. Yeah. And they were booked. Okay. They were booked. That's never happened right. to me before. Yeah, I said, you don't have room for one person? They No, they were booked uh, until such and such a time. So I went downstairs to console myself. I did a a, um, a lap through the Metropolitan uh, gift shop on the main right. floor, which we know is going right. to shortly be made into some kind of fabulous gallery. And uh, I found a book. The first book I saw, I walked in on a table, saw this book. It was the book of the murals of New York City, mm-hmm. public murals of New York City. And I bought it. Mm. And uh, actually as a gift for uh, somebody. And uh, I looked at it. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. It is beautiful and uh, full of interesting stories about these various um, uh, murals, murals yeah. all over, you know, Rockefeller Center, you know, yeah. all, you know, churches, um, courthouses, everywhere, you know, great stuff. Uh, it was a wonderful book. I, I never would have found that book unless I was in a bookstore. Okay. I'm not, how am I going to find that online? Listen, I don't even know. Okay. So anyway, more- Bookstores, I have great adventures at bookstores. So um, we all have good and bad things to say about Barnes and Noble. Well, look, let me just now, say, I what? was going to say, I don't like bookstores in part because they're usually small, cramped places. I'm kind of a big guy. There's no place to be. But I like Barnes and Noble because it's a place to sit down and it's, it's a little open air. Well, Barnes and Noble was, you know, going down the tubes. Yeah. But uh, it's been bought by a hedge fund Mm -hmm. and headed up by James Daunt, Mm -hmm. who uh, is famous for his chain of Daunt books Mm -hmm. and for turning around a, uh, what do you call it, a chain of bookstores in England, Mm -hmm. uh, Water Waterstones. Okay. okay? So he's supposed to be quite uh, amazing Mm -hmm. when it comes to bookstores. And he has an idea of wanting to create sort of individual stores like not you know getting away from all these mass retailing theories Mm -hmm. which he thinks don't really seem to work and in terms of design and in terms of uh you know um choosing product uh tailoring it more to the individual stores and their individual locations he says it doesn't work for all stores Mm -hmm. okay um but we we have a top quarter that's doing fantastically, and then there's you know uh, another quarter that are it's been a disaster, giving this sense of independence. So he's really trying to create kind of individual bookstores to some extent, mm-hmm. and just get away from having it look like just another you know mass retailing right. spot. And let me say, I love a small cramped bookstore right, that's like my favorite to be huddled good, into good. a corner you can be there with books while your husband's okay. outside it's um, and uh and so and you, you pointed out to me a um chat with ann patchett in the uh i think it was the leisure arts and leisure section or something of the new york times this sunday mm-hmm. and even she says she's all for barnes and noble there was a time that Barnes & Noble was a scary big box store. We wanted them to go away. You know, she has. Yeah, she owns bookstore. a bookstore. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm very happy, she says, for any brick and mortar bookstore. Um, and, uh, yeah. All I, right. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, look, I, uh, good. I, I don't mind the bookstores. As I said, I, I used to like Barnes & Noble a lot. I particularly liked it when it was a big box retailer but that's fine uh i'll go for it yeah but you know it's always had this odd arrangement where you know the way things are and then you have to go all you know only at one exit can you possibly check out bookstores have an idiosyncratic arrangement um that's part of their charm all right so uh i was about to say there was an article i'll do this very briefly grand canyon warns love locks threaten an endangered species all right, so apparently, well, you're aware of this. We see this uh, in Lambertville. Um, 
sometimes uh, young lovers or any lovers, uh, couples, if you will, uh, commemorate their commitment. Oh yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Right. right. By you know putting a lock, the lock a, on their love, a padlock. Uh, yeah, but they write their names on it. That I wasn't on to. Apparently that's done. I don't think the names are always well, there. The, the, the journal believes so. And then they, t- this I didn't know, they toss the key down into the ravine below or wherever they are. And because... The they river. Were, yeah, they're sealing their love. Yeah. So there you have it. So yeah. this is a thing. Well, it turns out this is a thing that the, the federal government will no longer have at Grand Canyon. They says this this has to go. And they have a bunch of posters saying love is strong, but our padlocks are stronger. And they are actually clipping these off and getting rid of these. And the question is, uh, why? Uh, And it turns out uh, because the locks threaten, according to uh, the government agency, the California condor, because the California condor um, apparently could uh, ingest the key that is thrown below as they uh, scavenge for food. And that kind of metal in their system is quite bad for the California condor. And to save the species, uh, the federal government is removing these locks. So combination locks only? Uh, No, no. No locks? Can I make my point? Yeah. The government's out of its mind, all right? (laughs) Because my point is this. Uh, uh, Number one, uh, there is no evidence that any California condor has ever eaten a key. None. They make the point in the Wall Street Journal article, although they don't run with it, and there's a Times article too, but it acknowledges the same thing. There is, they have found one California condor who ate a coin who died. One, I think. But none have eaten the key. And yet... But if there are a lot of keys around, maybe... The, the that's what the government says. It could happen. Them. But here's the thing that really <laughs> kills me about this. What? The government's not doing anything about the keys. They're getting rid of the locks. The keys are staying below. The government's not foraging for well, keys. They're, they're just, well, they're doing that and with the hopes that it will discourage people from putting new locks yeah, there. But it won't. Because they're going to... No, no. you got to do something about the keys, not the locks. And the keys aren't any problem anyway. So that's a little bit too weak for me. Well, you know, our bald eagle down the river here yeah. got lead poisoning. Yes, that could be. That could so, be. Yeah, that could be. But look, again, do clipping, clipping the locks is not really going to get it. Now, there are examples. Apparently, this is a big thing, uh, Bridge Over the Seine, uh, the yeah, Pone they, d'Art. But that's yeah. because they, they remove the locks because the weight of the locks it is threatens the structure of the bridge. That happens. <laughs> that's a lot places. of locks. Well, that happened in the U.S. too at Brooklyn Bridge. They took off a bunch of locks for that reason. Well, there's a little bridge uh, next to the canal yeah. that has locks on it. Yeah. Look, I don't understand. But it doesn't seem to be threatened. I don't think the California condor is really at risk. But all right, go ahead. Let's move on. I don't Let's want to move on. Let's move on. So we've been eating well lately. Yeah. And um, I got to say, uh, um, I saw an article today that um, Radicchio is in. Yeah. So you're going to be eating more radicchio. You know, yeah. we get we belong to a CSA and we get all these vegetables. Okay. We've been getting a lot of radicchio. We're going to get more. So that's an in thing okay. right now, just so you know. Good. When I was buying it at the grocery store recently, yeah. the young guy checking, checked me out, saying, checking, was checking me the out. young guy said, checked you uh, out. Yes, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> said, um, what is this, red cabbage or red onion? He's asking you questions? Yeah. Are you allowed? And I to? said, oh, you didn't it's know radicchio. This. He said, well, what is that? And I, I said, well, you know, it's... It's good. It's delicious. It, I said it's really bitter, but it's delicious. Yeah. It, when you combine it with other things, it can be magical. Right. And he said, yeah, really? Mm. <laughs> he did not seem That's convinced. His question, when he says, what's that? He's saying, how much is it a pound? That's what he wants to know. But no, he wanted to know what the heck uh, it was. Right. Well, it's good. He, you're, you're he a was mystified, you know. This is the same market where Ariana Grande was spotted uh, just a few days before. Yeah, she came to see her brother in, in, in the a local show, play, yeah. the local show. We missed out on All right, that. anyway, so speaking of um, what's in, yeah. the buzz grows for non-alcoholic beer. Hmm. According to the Wall Street Journal, uh, non-alcoholic beer sales are growing like crazy. Non-alcoholic beer, at, let's say, um, in the U.S., yeah. overall sales of beer, hard seltzer, and alcoholic cider spiked during the first year of the pandemic, but have largely stagnated since then. 
By contrast, U.S. sales of non-alcoholic beer were up 32% from a year earlier in the weeks, blah, 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 blah. All right. So, you know, as predicted here, I said, I have a feeling about non-alcoholic beer. We're not the only people in the universe who want to drink this. But here's the problem with that. I mean, uh, there's not a problem with it. Uh, You were right and you continue to be right. But the question is, how do you monetize that? Let's say you've identified the trend. How do you jump in on it? And the problem is that does it make sense to have an establishment that focuses on non-alcoholic beer or other non-alcoholic spirits? And the answer to that is probably no, because as they mentioned in the article, often people buying non-alcoholic products are often buying alcoholic products even at the same time. Or they're with a group of people, some buy alcoholics, some not. So the result is... You need to have an establishment that has a liquor license even to sell a non-alcoholic beer because people are buying it in tandem with alcoholic products. Right, right. right. So right now, it. Heineken yeah. has the biggest one. I believe 0. it. 0.0. Yeah. Okay. It has something like, uh, in the U.S., 20% of the market share. Well, listen, anybody who's drinking right. Heineken They're benefiting from their distribution yeah. 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 network, etc. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they say one of the key points is, one yeah. of the things you worry about is it... Is um, is the increase in alcoholic taking away from alcoholic? I doubt and it. they say sixty percent of the non-alcoholic beer sales are incremental, right. not cannibalizing existing. Well, uh, that means forty percent are cannibalizing. So that's yeah. Uh, well, I mean that's that yeah. Something. I mean that's something, yeah. but still, uh, it's uh, really the biggest growth area, and um, so which was interesting to me because, you know, they say the processes have gotten better and better so that the non-alcoholic beers taste like better that. and I better. That. The best pro- the best taste they get is from, uh, you know, trying to de-alcoholize fermented beer. Mm-hmm. Okay, fermented flavor comes from the fermentation, but right. so does alcohol. So, um so they're getting better at better at doing that and yeah. also at adding flavors afterward hmm. that compensate for certain flavor lost yeah. uh, by the alcohol. But there was also an article, the, you know, the wire cutter, the sort of consumer reports right. section of the New York Times was recommend had an article about hop flavored beers. Yeah. Not hop-flavored beers. Hop-flavored water. water. Hop water. For people who like that hop flavor, but don't want whatever else is going on, don't don't want, you know, pretend beer or whatever it is. And so they were recommending a bunch of uh, brands, Hop Lark, Sierra Nevada has something called Hop Splash, Athletic Brewing, which does non-alcoholic beers, has a bunch of hop waters. There's also such a thing as hop tea. Now, you're a tea guy. Maybe you will like hop tea. Well, look, we haven't tried any of these. So it, it's basically talking? carbonated water with hops. Yeah, but I, I can't even imagine what that tastes like. I, I have well, no we'll idea. have to find out. Yeah, okay. And the article actually, at the end of it, yeah. kind of tells you how to make your own hop water. Oh, well, let's do that. But you need, and you need a carbonator. Oh, we sort of have that. We have that. Yeah. All right. All right. Something to look forward to with the radicchio. Radicchio, excuse me. So two obituaries and we'll close. One is Walt Garrison. You know, I think I may, I'm thinking of making beet ice cream. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, Walt Garrison I'm just putting away. together a meal there do, with do all those bitters. Do you know Walt Garrison? Just, no, I do not know That Walt shocks Garrison. me. Because Walt Garrison... How does it shock you? <laughs> first of all, he was the guy who advertised Skoll. And he would say, a little pinch between your cheek or gum. You must have seen that ad for yes, years. Yes, That's Walt I've Garrison. I've seen that. Okay? I, but not being interested... Well, but he was a football player. He wasn't just in, known for Skoll. But he was one of the original, one of the early Dallas Cowboys. I had no idea who that was. I assumed it was a baseball player. No, no. And not only that... He put the cowboy in the Dallas Cowboys. When the Dallas Cowboys started, they had guys who were real cowboys. And that's exactly what he was. They said he, he spoke in an accent that twanged like a pedal steel guitar. He wore cowboy hats as wide as the Rio Grande. And he carried a sharp knife in his back pocket for whittling sticks. Here's his quote. But I have to describe myself as being a country boy, not a city slicker by no means. I don't like to live in town. I like it out. How's that? So he was. You understand that 
a lot of people feel that all cowboys are fake. This guy's not fake. No, there, there was no such thing as cowboy is just right. an invention you know what of I the mean. movies. My point is, he was in rodeo. That's my point. He was he did rodeo more than he did football. Okay, and uh, but the way he played football was every time, as they say here, it's quite true. He turned. He wasn't like he was that big or that fast, but he turned every attempted tackle into a wrestling match. Uh, but that's the way he played. He was a tough guy. Now, Danny Don Meredith, you remember Don Meredith? Yes. Who also came across as a cowboy, was yes. the first to say, I'm not a cowboy. Garrison's a cowboy. And here's a quote <laughs> Here's a quote from Danny Don Meredith. If you needed four yards, you give the ball to Walt Garrison, and he'd get you four yards. If you needed 20 yards, you give the ball to Walt Garrison, and he'd get you four yards. So, so <laughs> that's... That's the way he played. And he played injured and he played crazy. Uh, and uh, he um, he loved uh, bulldogging and steer wrestling. Uh, steer wrestling is when uh, a horse-mounted rider chases down a steer, leaps to grab it by the horns and wrestle it to the ground. And he actually, that's how his career ended. He was involved in a rodeo program in the offseason in 75. And he was doing bulldogging and he tore his knee up. But as he said, that gave me a good way to retire without someone saying... You're too old and you're too slow. I could just say I hurt my knee in a rodeo. So that was, he was yeah. like a legend. Um, and finally, Phyllis Coates died. Phyllis Coates was the original Lois Lane in the television Superman series, where you had uh, George Reeves playing Superman. And um, she only did it one year. Uh, she was replaced by Noel Neal afterwards, I believe. And um, she didn't like it. She didn't like it too much. Uh, so um, they say, why was it? She was kind of, it was narrow. It was, it was the one acting involved. She had more in mind for her career. But here's another reason she didn't like it. She said her daughter really was negative about it. Her daughter, quote, would say to her, I just can't understand why you can't see through Superman's disguise. He's just wearing glasses you can't tell that Clark Kent is Superman? <laughs> she, says, she says she thinks I'm quite stupid about the whole thing. So, uh, you know, she left it. So there you go. You saw that series, right? Of course you did. Yeah, I didn't memorize every episode like oh. you probably oh, did. Oh, no, but, no. Uh, the episodes were similar. All right, that's it. We've gone we got, on We got to go. We, we got to go. We got uh, things to do. Stayed, overstayed our welcome. We have. But we'll be back. This yeah. is Tamsin Green. You're not going to make beet ice cream, are you really? I think it might be good. Yeah. Look, carrot cake is good. All right, yeah. All right? This is, this is uh, Dan Abuhoff. It would be pretty. I'll yeah. tell you that. It will be good. You can send a picture to Pepper. Uh, Tamsin Granger, that's who I am. Yes. Uh, and Tamsin, Dan, read the paper. We'll see you next week.